Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So I'll talk today about social media. I want to look at some of the ways in which social science has started to focus on social media and to provide some examples of this from my own work. This is a relatively new area of research for me, but it links to other long-standing interests and it enables me to talk a little bit about methods and, importantly, it was conceived of and developed through interdisciplinary collaborations, both inside and outside academia. I want to start, though, with what was the opening paragraph of the acknowledgements of my PhD. Um, Certain authors, speaking of their works, say, my book, my commentary, my history, etc., They resemble middle-class people who have a house of their own and always have my house on their tongue. They would do better to say our book, our commentary, our history, because there is usually in them more of other people's than their own. My collaborations with colleagues have always been hugely valued, and of course the rise in interdisciplinary perspectives gives much clearer expression to the value and necessity of such collaborations. However, even when these are not formalised, it is conversations, exchanges of ideas, Postmortems on things that didn't go to plan that in the end turn into papers, proposals and funded projects. I've got fantastic colleagues who I've worked with over the last 17 years or so, none more so, of course, than here at the University of Bath, where I've been for the last 18 months. I didn't have to say that. (laughs) In considering the opportunities and challenges of social media, I want to link this to ideas that have been developed over the course of my academic life. It was partly during my PhD, but mainly in my first postdoctoral post at the University of Surrey, that I started to get interested in understanding the ways in which people think about risk and the sorts of challenges this provides to practitioners, policymakers around the area of risk management and risk communication. In one way or another, I've been doing work in this area since that time. It was then during the four years that I spent at the University of Brunel, after I left Surrey in 2009, that I started to consider the potential of social media as a way of addressing some of these research questions. I was working, um, as Vice-Chancellor says, within the Department of Information Systems Computer Science that time, so this provided a fantastic opportunity to think about the methods that can best enable social science researchers to study social media. So, what is social media? There's no single definition, and to some extent, what counts as social media evolves as new web applications are created. At the heart of social media, though, is user-generated content, and there are now many web and mobile applications that invite, enable, process, store, and retrieve user-generated content. You'll all be more or less familiar with various examples of these, I'm sure, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and so on. The user-generated content involves text, links, photos, audio, video, singly or in combination. Of course, outside web applications, other examples of this user-generated content might include comments that follow online news articles or blogs, customer reviews or places or products, for example, on TripAdvisor and Amazon are another example. So why my interest in social media? The bottom line here is that social media are spaces where individuals, organisations and institutions represent themselves, where they're visible and where they interact. Social media are places where we can observe these interactions. So we can see immediately that this is very much in line with the core business of social science in terms of my own background of social psychology. 
The focus of social psychology is on how our thoughts and feelings and behaviours are influenced by the actual imagined or implied presence of others. More broadly, more simply, it's concerned with how people behave in social situations, and social media is one such situation. Before, before exploring the interface between social media and risk, let's look in a bit more detail at Twitter, as that is the social media platform that I'll be referring most to in the work that I'm talking about. Twitter is a social media platform that arguably lends itself best to looking at risk or risk events, how people make sense of them, and how organisations seek to communicate about risk. More of this in a minute. But in the meantime, how does Twitter work? What is a tweet? Anyone can have a Twitter account. You choose a Twitter name of your choice, prefaced by the at sign from the middle of email addresses. Then you can send tweets. You can follow people you're interested in. Other people will follow you. You'll see their tweets. They'll see yours. You might just want to see the other, what other people are saying rather than tweet yourself. Messages are no more than 140 characters long and contain, as I said earlier, video, pictures or text, and sometimes the text is a web link. You can keep tweets by favouriting them, and when you, do it, when you do that, that is indicated to the sender. You can forward a tweet to your followers by retweeting it, and if you wanted to, you could add some information of your own at that point, or, of course, you could reply to the person who sent it. One important feature of the tweet itself is words that are prefaced by a hashtag. This is a way of categorising your tweet, and clicking on the hashtag shows all the tweets that are classified with that hashtag, so it's like a keyword, essentially. So to give you some idea of the current scale of Twitter usage, there are 302 million users active every month. Over three-quarters of Twitter accounts actually are outside of the US, and 500 million tweets are sent every day in 33 languages. And if you want to know what the most popular tweet ever is, there it is. Um, it was a photo taken by Ellen DeGeneres at the Oscars. So you can see there some of the features that I referred to, hashtag Oscars, um, the link to the photo, the text that accompanied it, as well as you can see there the number of retweets and the number of um, favourites, the number of times it was favourited. So why do I say that Twitter is the social media platform most suited for exploring risk events? Well, the shortness of the tweet lends itself to real-time and frequent updates, and most accounts are accessed through a mobile, which enables 24-7 accessibility. Microblogs such as Twitter are seen as, and I quote, a rich source of event-centric, user-generated content on social networks. Additionally, Twitter is increasingly used by organisations who have risk management responsibilities as part of their communication strategy. So all that seems like an opportunity. Turning briefly to at least one of the challenges, my colleague Phil Brooker um, categorises Twitter data as mostly unscripted and unsolicited. It is raw and exaggerated. It can be unsanitised and unfettered by concepts like proper conduct. This, this contrasts with a much more constrained, albeit unspoken, code of research which generally regulates participant responses where we use methods that involve researchers interacting with participants, interviews, focus groups, and so on. So, to inform our consideration of social media and risk, I just want to share a little bit of background on risk research before we look at the way in which social media can actually provide a window on that. So, a few years back, um, as the Vice-Chancellor has already mentioned, my first postdoctoral post was actually working for uh, Professor Glynis Breakwell at the University of Surrey on a project that was funded by the um, Health and Safety Executive and that was working with a framework called the Social Amplification of Risk. 
the reason why this framework was assembled um, by its um, authors was in order to explain really why some risk issues get a lot of attention in society and others don't. So one scenario that the framework talks about is when the public are concerned but there is little equivalent attention from scientists or policy officials. Of course, it's not as simple as that when we say the public. The public are not any homogenous group. It might be that there's particular interest groups that are visible in voicing concern or objection, and this becomes attributed or more broadly identified as public opinion in general. What might look like public concern about risk might actually be concern about other things. For example, citizens are, less li are likely to be less concerned with configurations of likelihood and consequences, which is the basics, basis of expert definitions of risk, but will pay more attention to the way in which risks are being managed, whether institutions and organisations are fulfilling their commitments and responsibilities, whether people managing risk can be trusted. Certainly publics are sensitised to qualities of the risk and the way that it's managed, actually in ways that are quite orderly and predictable. We as the public are more likely to be concerned about unfamiliar events, where problems are seen as man-made, where there's someone to blame, when issues can be presented in terms of human interest stories, and so on. So examples of societal risk issues where public concern has been characterised, at least by some experts, as unwarranted or excessive, would include siting of hazardous facilities like incinerators, uh, possibly nuclear power, um, the MMR vaccination issue, and um, perhaps genetically modified foods. So the social of application risk framework also considers the opposite scenario. That is where expert estimates of risk are apparently not matched by public attention. Here the framework uses the concept of attenuation. Public concerns are att attenuated rather than intensified. So we might think about public is health issues such as smoking or obesity where the policy focuses on seeking to increase citizens' appreciation and action around the situation. Climate change might be considered another example here. These processes of risk amplification, intensification, attenuation, they matter. They matter a lot to organisations and institutions because of the impacts that they can have. These impacts, for example, products being withdrawn from the market, reputational damage, um, loss in property values and so on, can sometimes actually affect things that are ostensibly unrelated to the initial issue. When the social amplification and risk framework seeks to explain these patterns of intensification, attenuation around risk, the media are actually key. Given our lack of first-hand experience of most of these risks, the way in which we learn about them is often through the media and what, state, what SAF, a social amplification and risk framework, terms stations of amplification. These can be individual, they can be individual people, but they can also be social stations of amplification like institutions or like the media. The media, and of course there's many, very many different types of media, play a big role as a station of amplification, either intensification or attenuation. And the role that the media have in representing risk has been one of the main lines of research to come from the social amplification framework. The way in which the media influences is not straightforward. In fact, there's a great deal of evidence showing how people are active in making sense of the media. They don't just soak it up in an unthinking manner. It chimes with the agenda-setting function of the media. It's not that we think what they tell us, more that they tell us what to think about. So media coverage is informed by and actually seeks to resonate with our own uh, values and preferences. 
We also know that as well as content, quantity of media coverage is important. And there's some evidence that greater coverage is associated with greater perceptions of risk independently of the way that the risk is actually reported. So this is where social media come in. Through, though academic outputs relating to social media are growing exponentially in many areas, even of social science, almost none of this relates to risk perception, where the focus has been still very much on traditional media. I'd like to outline some of the work we've been doing here, and I, I first want to just put up a slide that just shows the, the general approach that I, that I want to situate the rest of what I want to say within. So, as academics, we're looking at this issue through a lens that is provided more or less tightly by theory. But what is it we're actually looking at through that lens? In part, we're looking at social media data itself. In terms of today, what I'm talking about, in part, we're looking at Twitter data. But there are lots of other very relevant questions that require other sorts of data to answer them. For example, how do organisation functions and policies change to increase engagement with social media? What questions do organisations ask of the social media data they collect and why? How do people attribute credibility to claims made on social media? All of these areas require our research attention and we have to look at them as well as at the data itself. So as well as asking what are we looking at, we also have to ask how are we going to look at it? What methods do we need to do that? And I want to focus here on the collaborations that I've had between computer science and social science that actually led to designing software that allowed us to look at the rise and fall of um, how attention to risk is, is, happens. So following this largely quantitative approach to social media analysis, I want to look a little bit at qualitative analysis of some Twitter data that's particularly designed to look at coping strategies around risk. And then following that, I'll talk a little bit about the way in which policy organisations are seeking to use social media. <clears throat> so one of the things I've always been interested in de is developing methods that most precisely and appropriately allow you to address your research questions. So as I've implied in relation to social, amplica social amplification of risk framework, one question of interest both to risk scholars and to risk managers is to understand a bit more it is about why risk issues take off in the public consciousness. One method that would seem to be particularly promising in characterising the dynamics of this process is layering different types of data against each other with a view to identifying and exploring some of the dynamics. We did that initially back on in, in the health and safety executive project that I referred to and saw how layering different sorts of secondary data against each other allowed us to develop some hypotheses about the process that might help to explain the patterns or indeed sometimes we saw patterns that actually run counter to what we might expect from predictions derived from the framework. So now let's run with this layering approach and bring social media into the equation. So on a European FP7 project that I was involved in called uh, Food Risk, one study where we were working with colleagues at University College Dublin was, uh, as part of that, we wanted to look at the rise and the fall of um, traditional and social media coverage across the sequence of events around the contamination of Irish pork 
with dark sin. This happened, the, the actual incident was during 2008. This was really in the very early days of social media coverage, and we were looking back at that data, and we were particularly interested in the question as to what juxtaposing coverage of traditional media and social media might imply as to some of the relationships between them. So the social media coverage I'm referring here was actually not just about Twitter. It also included comments on news sites um, and blogs. So what we see here is that after the announcement of Dark Sin in Pork, which took place right at the start there on the 6th of December, coverage both in traditional print media rose, at, traditional and social media rose between then and the last official announcement, which was on the 11th of December. So unsurprisingly, really, the social media coverage started slightly ahead of the traditional media coverage because there's no editorial processes to uh, have to take their course. But interestingly, the social media coverage did not peak until after the traditional media coverage had. And this stimulates some questions as to the extent to which the later social media coverage was possibly, one might hypothesise, to what extent might it be drawing on that traditional media coverage. So then we set out to look in more, at Twitter data in more detail to explore the way in which risk-related information is circulated and discussed and the way we might understand the rise and fall of these issues. So the way we started to do this, as I alluded to earlier, was to design some software to allow us to, to collect and analyse Twitter data in a form that facilitated this type of analysis. Uh, the software is called Chorus. I was working on this with a, a visual um, analytics expert, uh, Dr. Tim Cribbin from Brunel, and, and we, along with um, Dr. Phil Brooker, who now works with me here at Bath, looked at how Twitter data might be most usefully represented visually in order to be able to identify relationships, characterise change over time, and help us to address or even develop hypotheses about the rise and fall of organisational and public attention to risk. So I'm only talking today really about a few of the um, capabilities of Chorus. And so given that we're looking at um, the social amplification of risk, I'm going to focus on the capturing the keywords and the, uh, the timeline explorer aspect of it. So how do we do this? We, well, we started by working and, and this really explains why I went into a little bit of detail about what Twitter consists of. We were working with the characteristics of the metadata that are available in addition to the lexical content of the tweet. So, for example, it has a date stamp saying exactly the time the tweet was sent. It has the hashtag. It has links that are embedded. There's a retweet function and so on. And secondly, we sought to structure the visual representation of the data in line with the work we've been developing around the social amplification of his framework. So, for example, we wanted to address questions such as, could we see any evidence that public attention was switching to new, a new focus? Was it possible that public concern was moving in the way it was anchored to different aspects of the issue? How stable over time is the information that was circulated? Are there new topics being introduced? So, the, the, the sort of metrics that we developed, I'll, I want to say a little bit about them in general, and then we'll, I'll, I'll show you how it works in terms of the data. But one thing we developed then was a metric of homogeneity. So this is based on the uniformity of the lexical content within a particular interval. 
So we might just say, let's, for the sake of argument, let's call an interval of 24 hours. And so it indicates to what extent contributors in a given inter in interval agree on the salient terms of the topic or not. Secondly, a metric of novelty was developed. This indicates how different the semantic content in one interval is from the previous interval. So before I show you the output of this, let me explain a little bit about the risk data that was the focus of this analysis. It was actually the E. coli outbreak, which happened in May to July 2011. This was one of the biggest ever food crises in Europe, <clears throat> resulting from biological contamination, the source of which was initially, and actually for quite a long time, unknown. It was very serious. 53 people died, and over 850 were, were very seriously ill. I'm going to show you a slide now that shows the rise and fall of Twitter activity in, this is Twitter in, that was in Spanish, and I want to juxtapose that activity against the various notifications of the hazard. So the data set here was all the tweets in Spanish that mention E. coli or an E. coli related hashtag uh, or some, some derivative really of E. coli. So. Starting on May the 11th, the first reported cases of human contamination from E. coli emerged in Germany. It was actually on May the 25th that the first official communication was from the German authorities advising the public not to eat tomatoes, lettuce or cucumber. This was followed the next day by a communication from the Hamburg Health Authorities stating that cucumbers have been identified as the source of the outbreak and Spain as the country of origin. On May the 31st, however, doubt was cast on cucumbers as a source of the contamination, and the following day, it was confirmed that Spanish cucumbers were not to blame. On June the, on June the 5th, bean sprouts were identified as the possible culprit, and Germany as their country of origin, and this was confirmed on June the 10th. An outbreak in France later that month raised the suspicion that it was fenugreek seeds and not bean sprouts that were the source, and this was actually confirmed on July the 5th. You can imagine, or if you can remember the incident, you'll be very aware of the, the amount of uncertainty that, or certainty sometimes followed by uncertainty that was circulating at that time. So this sort of sets out really the hazard sequence and provides a basis for us to consider the UK situation in more detail using the Chorus software. So, if we look at a period running from 25th of May to the 17th of June, that's a slightly shorter time period than the previous slides, the light grey columns show the total number of tweets that were in English. And I've entered the same, just to align you roughly to it, I've entered the same notifications that were on the previous slide. You can see broadly the look of the picture is, is quite similar with that sort of um, leading up to a sharp peak and then more or less dying away of, over the coming days. So let's think about the tweets that do or don't contain links to other information. So the light grey columns show the profile of tweet volume across 24-hour periods across the event. The dark sections that are part of those columns depict the percentage of tweets that contain links, links to other websites. Gradually, the proportion of links being shared decreases over the main conversational event. It starts relatively high, 25th or 30th of May, 
68 to 90% of tweets contain a link to other information. The focus here then seems to be on information propagation. As events progress, however, the interpretive rather than the informational function of tweets increases. The conversation becomes more about expressing and sharing an opinion. 31st of May, 3rd of June, only 40 to 55% of tweets contain links. Later on in the timeline, after the main period of attention passes, there's a lower but more varied pattern. 11th to 17th of June, 42 up to 75% of tweets contain links. So this analysis might suggest that what we saw earlier in the slide about Darkson in Pork, where social media didn't peak until after traditional media, might be better explained by a switch from this information emphasis to a more interpretive one that led to a greater volume of dialogue and debate. Of course, given the volume, given the importance of trust and credibility in risk communication and management, the triggers for sharing information and which information sources are drawn upon is a very important topic in its, on its own and something that Chorus directly provides data about on a significant scale. I've picked out some examples here to illustrate the different focus of these information and interpretation-focused tweets. So, these information-focused tweets were very early on, right from the 27th of March. It's very early days, and actually, I've, and I've taken the names of the um, people sending the tweet, um, tweets out, but you can see um, that they're very much focused around information. They're containing links. There's quite a few that are actually from food uh, producers, manufacturers, and retailers, and so on. And that's the, that's the information-sharing focus. Um, Clear contrast, which I'm obviously I'm intending to make with these illustrative um, tweets, is the more interpretive photo, focus that you see six days later, and you you can you can see the sorts of things that um, people were saying that um, where really the theme is much more about you know personal observation um, and reflection. Okay, so now let's turn to one of the other metrics that I referred to referred to, which is this question of novelty. So we'll go back to the um, other slide. Sorry, I've got my specs on. Um, so there's an overall, so the, the novelty is, is the, depicted in the red line. And you can see there's an overall increase in novelty depicting the red line through, through the main conversational event, but with some notable peaks and troughs, which I've, I've highlighted there. So the novelty metric is really useful for identifying points of departure high novelty value and points of convergence, low novelty value across time periods. Thus, we can say that at a certain point <coughs> excuse me, in the conversation, people started talking about different things or at least talking about previous topics in different ways with different vocabularies to do so. So broadly, it seems here that as the interpretive tweeting develops and the conversation is less defined by media outlets, the focus of the conversation changes across different time intervals. So this analysis offers the possibility of seeing what new elements of the conversation that were not there before, what new ideas are circulating. We also have the metric of homogeneity, which is depicted here in the yellow line. Where the measure of novelty captures similarity or difference between intervals, the, here the homogeneity metric captures the semantic uniformity within a particular time interval. In line with the movement from exchange to interpretation, 
we generally see a decrease in homogeneity across the main conversational event as people start to talk about the topic of E. coli increasingly diverse ways. There are multiple topics within a particular period and external media are not the reference point to the same extent. So thus far then, I've met, what I've talked about has had a mainly quantitative focus. Using Chorus for data capture, though, has also enabled us to do some qualitative analysis, and we've done that to actually explore the Spanish E. coli data that I referred to before. This was led by my uh, colleagues in Ishtar in Lisbon, and we looked at this data with a view to exploring how people were appraising the E. coli situation and where it was seen as a threat, what sort of coping strategies that they used. So we looked at the coping expressions. The way we did that as a, as a qualitative analysis was a in a deductive fashion. That is to say, we took a health psychology model of coping as our framework and sought to code the data, the tweets, in line with that. So in answer to the question as to what ways of coping were expressed during a food crisis, the most common strategy was around accommodation. This is where tweets relate or depict, express the adjustment um, and assent around the available options of managing. And sometimes that was done with, with humour, for example. Information seeking, finding out more about the situation was the next most common coping strategy, though the focus was rather more on passive encounters than active. And that, that this coping strategy was evident in 17% of the time. And the third most common strategy was opposition, with 17% of tweets falling in this category and very many expressing um, you know, in, in rather aggressive um, fashion what their views about the situation was. Of course, options for coping are not just shaped by the individual's resources, they're also shaped by the resources that may be or may not be provided by the context. So you'll remember that one very obvious aspect of the E. coli crisis was this uncertainty about what caused the infection and, and which country that the cause of that was associated with. So in the earlier period, there was greater certainty that um, Spain and Spanish cucumbers were responsible. In the later period, this became an increasingly uncertainty. So what we wanted to do was to explore whether there was any evidence in Twitter that coping strategies were in any way attuned to this uncertainty. So we identified um, early on the two periods, the first period where there was some certainty that actually it was um, Spanish cucumbers that were responsible, and then after, the, after an announcement where it, that, that wasn't the case, then there was some uncertainty introduced as to what the, the cause was. So we separated that into those two areas. And what we found was that there was a significantly higher proportion of coping expressions during the period when it was uncertain whether the Spanish newcomers were to blame. And one difference in terms of the actual coping strategies, really what, pretty much the only difference actually, was that there was many more um, oppositional coping strategy tweets that were expressed in that period of uncertainty. So let me sum up what we've talked about so far. The combination of social science and visual analytics has led us to articulate some of the features of the social amplification of risk framework and to develop the layering perspective to, in the first instance, juxtapose social media data against various hazard notifications. Distinguishing between tweets with or without links was suggestive of a useful distinction at different phases of the hazard sequence between information provision and interpretation. The metrics of novelty, <coughs> 
and homogeneity revealed points where the interpretation of events shifted to more or less of a degree. And finally, we talked about expressions of coping in Twitter and how there was evidence to suggest that these were sensitive to changes in the uncertainty of the context. So the second area of work that I want to share with you rather more briefly relates not to Twitter or social media data themselves, but rather to exploring how organisations seek to engage with social media and start to do social media in pursuit of their objectives around communication and managing risk. So let's just go back for a minute to the diagram that I introduced earlier. So far, the focus of what I've talked about is on, that, on the top block, uh, where we've been looking at the Twitter data itself. But I've, I've tried to argue that it's actually important alongside this to look at the way in which people set out to use social media and the way that they actually do use it. Um, and so I want to tell you here a little bit about some of the research we've done about how organisations responsible for managing risk use social media. The organisation that I'll focus on here is the Food Standards Agency. This is the government body responsible for food safety and food hygiene. And in fact, probably the FSA have the most um, sophisticated use of social media across government, national government um, departments and agencies. So they're, they're an interesting case to consider. So here it's the organisation and their use of social media that are the object of research attention, not the analysis of, of the social media itself. So if we refer back to the social amplification framework just for a moment, bear in mind that the FSA are functioning uh, in terms of the social amplification and risk framework is a social station of implication. What, one question we can ask here is what structures, what values, what aspirations are shaping their communicative practices using social media? We've done some case study work in this area using interviews and documentary analysis, again as part of the Food Risk Project, in particular working with um, one of my colleagues, Panos, from uh, Queen Mary's London, as well as the team in uh, Dublin. So firstly, social media is seen to enhance organisational responsiveness and to enhance public perceptions of organisational responsiveness. Twitter is used to alert people to new content, to discuss, on occasion to initiate conversations. Assurances are given by the organisation that all replies are read, all comments and emerging themes are passed on to the appropriate part of the organisation. They highlight that tweets are not automated, um, but on the other hand, they manage expectations of responsiveness, saying that all messages cannot be replied to, stressing that following doesn't mean their endorsement and so on. Secondly, social media is seen as an important means of establishing relationships. Online, at least, these relationships are made visible through features of social media platforms such as favouriting, retweeting, mentioning, liking, as, as I've already explained. Using social media this way is seen by the organisation to dovetail well with their growing agenda around public and stakeholder engagement and partnership. Thirdly, social media is also valued for its potential to provide information and intelligence that is gathered both formally and informally, sometimes informally, intuitively, noticing regularities in the questions that are asked or noticing what people are asking about a particular issue. More formally, though, the Food Standards Agents are interested in layering social media content against epidemiological data relating, for example, to outbreaks of illness. So, in essence, their interest is in whether social media can help to predict outbreaks of illness. So, as an example, they have looked whether Twitter might be used to predict outbreaks of norovirus. 
and they found that a range of keywords that relate to the symptoms of norovirus um, found that these predicted Public Health England confirmed labs re lab reports about four weeks ahead of those lab reports. So through social media analysis, they're see still seeking to filter and to glean information from that user-generated content in order to attune the content and the timing of their communication. As an aside, it's interesting here to observe some of the challenges that this type of activity brings for the Food Standards Agency. For example, it leads to questions about the status of social media data as evidence in a similar way, actually, to the, the way in which qualitative research gets um, interrogated as to the type of evidence it provides. This focus on evidence links with other work that I've done um, with Dina Facilio around perceptions of what constitutes good evidence, as well as how justifications of sample size are constructed in qualitative research. In this context, the focus of Disquire is most tightly focused around uh, a lack of representativeness. Additionally, the, F the Food Standards Agency have actually sponsored a PhD student, um, Richard Hamshaw, who's working with me here at Bath to look at social media activity and organisational communication strategies around food allergy. And that's something we'll be developing over the next two or three years. Okay, so I've sought to make the case that social media offers an opportunity to social scientists to reinvigorate our consideration of processes of risk amplification. I've argued this can in part be done by social media data, but also by looking at organisational practices in this area. <clears throat> the challenges are considerable. In part, they're methodological, and I've argued that transdisciplinary solutions that neither party would have been able to develop alone were key in enabling social media outputs to be configured to enable social amplification risk processes to be explored. I've also suggested that there is value in aligning the analysis of social media in relation to the scaffolding that is provided by existing theoretical frameworks. We may decide as we progress that the new wine is best not kept in old wineskins, but if, if this proves to be so, it will be important to know why. In closing, I'd like to broaden this out a little and draw some final thoughts from two other projects that I'm working on here in Bath. The first of these, Curator, was funded by the SRC and is about challenging online fear and othering. This work is being done with colleagues at the Universities of Lincoln, Newcastle, Aberdeen and Nottingham. So the baseline observation of this project is that a lot of societal fear stems from and is represented in terms of mistrust of the other, people not like us. One place where this othering becomes visible is in social media. The early work we did, it was actually even before the project started, captured this very clearly in an analysis of the Twitter commentary that accompanied the screening of the Channel 4 programme, Benefit Street, which you may have heard of. In fact, the second series is, is running at the moment. Benefit Street is a documentary about a particular street in the UK where the focus was on residents who were largely defined in terms of their status as the recipients of state benefits. The chorus software enabled quantitative and qualitative analysis. There was a, over 124,000 tweets with the Benefit Street hashtag just sent over three weeks. And then we built on this with a more qualitative analysis. I'm not going to talk about the findings of this work here, but I want to emphasise that from this that is one thing that's very pertinent to our consideration to the social science and social media agenda. 
One thing we clearly saw in the analysis of the Twitter data was that as well as othering benefits claimants, there was also opposing talk that um, drew attention to the, that the, far, that the far bigger problem was that of abuse of the tax system. We saw that these two discussions rarely, rarely overlapped. This raises the question as to what sort of interventions could be designed to promote encounters between these opposing views and how to encourage debate and contestation between them. So this work re-emphasizes the relevance of social media for illuminating what in this instance is a long-standing social psychological preoccupation actually around prejudice and stigma, but it also presents the challenges of designing op opportunities for more empathetic engagement. As an aside, is one of the proudest moments of the project so far was that has to be worth something in terms of impact when the project launched got a headline in the Daily Star on the day that um, it actually launched. <laughs> and it wasn't true actually because it was a lot more than 750k as well. So. <laughs> Um, so I want to finish with saying a little bit about a project I'm working on with the Institute of Policy Research here at the University. Along with Hannah Duran and other colleagues, we're collaborating with Baines, that is Bath and North East Somerset Council and Clinical Commissioning Group, on a project that is exploring the potential for connected data to inform citizen-focused local policy and practice. This project is funded by a Transformation Challenge Award from the Cabinet Office, and that, that's money that's given to local councils to enable them to make suggestions as to how central government, to central government about how things can be done better. And in this instance, the focus was on how data could be used to inform policy decisions and to make better policy decisions. So the work that we're involved in is about seeking to realise the benefits of connecting otherwise unrelated administrative or area-level data sets. So as an example of what the project's about, is it possible to design a locate a local service more effectively by connecting such data sets? So in addressing this question with the CCG in relation to diabetes, one interesting thing that happened was that following on from a rapid evidence review that we did for them about what predicts good self-management in diabetes, they decided that to inform local service provision, they needed to know about perceptions of diabetes and the self-management preferences and practices of the local population. So they commissioned a survey and the data from this will now be linked into the, into the various administrative data sets that we've been working with. So why am I mentioning this here? Well, firstly, this too, as with social media, that requires us to use data in ways for which it was not intended. Secondly, again, as with our discussions of social media, I would argue that it is vital to have the dual focus, not only focusing on the best ways of interrogating the data itself and working out the appropriate skills and technologies that you require to do so, but more importantly, having the ability to stand back far enough to identify the other le levels and layers of understanding that are necessary. This means looking at the ways in which organisations are interacting with their data. What are their priorities? What are their models of evidence? What are the questions they want to ask of the data and why? Looking above that further, as it were, organisations themselves are working within systems that are constrained, in this instance, for example, by information governance regulations, which are in turn shaped, at least in part, by perceptions of concerns around data security and privacy. 
And then looking below the level of the organisation, we're back to where we started in terms of recognising data that help us articulate psychosocial processes that will shape individual and group behaviours around self-management in this instance. It was great and actually unanticipated on our part that the value of this level of analysis for informing service design and delivery was recognised by the CCG themselves in that commissioning of the patient perception survey. Whether the focus is on social media data or other types of big open connected data that are messy, partial, not fit for purpose, social science is key to interdisciplinary initiatives to take advantage of the research opportunities they offer with clear sight of the accompanied challenges. So, having started with the opening clause in the acknowledgements of my PhD, I want to finish with the sentences with which my PhD acknowledgements closed. Of course, I hope, as I've made clear, there are now many additional people to acknowledge. It's not that funny. Uh, There are now many more additional people to acknowledge in their contribution to my work. New friends, new colleagues, most significantly my partner Sue. But those initial acknowledgements remain pretty much the same as they were today. My family, Diet Coke, Crystal Palace. Um, Simply, there is a a change in the length of my indebtedness. So... Thank you very much for listening.